Yeah, we had a good time away. Last week we uh, worshipped in St. Catharines at my, uh, my brother's church uh, where his wife's the, the worship leader there. And we had a good time and made a trip up to Ottawa where Lisa's sister is and her husband and uh, got to see lots of new things for us. And, but uh, good, good to be home and get the kids back in school. They had about four days of school and then off we went. So they've had a long summer and... Their parents are happy to send them to school. <laughs> right on. Yeah, no kidding I heard out there. Hey, cool. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning, all right? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We love the written word because it leads us to the living word, uh, Jesus Christ. Lord, that's our, our, my heart this morning, our heart this morning. Lord, uh, our desire is we would become less, Jesus would become more that we'd fade into the background, that he'd come into the foreground of our lives, that our hearts would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would reflect uh, the nature of our Savior, our King. God, I pray that your rule would extend uh, further over our church, over our lives, over this community this morning as, as we seek you. And we just ask your blessing upon uh, the teaching of the word, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would uh, open it up to our hearts and to our minds, and that we would learn and grow. And uh, we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting this morning, I know there are some visitors. We've been working uh, through this series through uh, the book of Exodus. And uh, it's been really narrative up to this point, telling stories and really cool. And now it's, a, it's about to change, all right? So let's, let's check this out. And... Um, Originally this morning I thought, you know, I'm going to run the, ga- the gauntlet through t- two chapters as I was prepping this week. And then the way it came together is just, just one chapter we're going to look at. But we're entering this section where it's, it's uh, a, a, a little chunk within the book of Exodus of three chapters, okay? And it says in verse 1, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So this is the first of three chapters which uh, present... Uh, God's laws to the people of Israel. He is establishing for them a legal system, all right? Uh, We've seen them come out of the life of slavery. They've been redeemed. They've come through the desert. They've met with God. They've been given ten commandments, moral laws by which uh, their lives were to be ruled. And now, as the nation is being established, he's going to give them a legal system so that they can operate this, this nation of people that was born like that with uh, a, couple, a couple million of them. And so, these were the laws by which the judges that Moses was to appoint, how they would rule over the people. All right? And now, what, what I'm going to say is uh, some introductory thoughts as we come to this section because it's much of what we read here this morning is real common sense. You're, you're going to see that as we go through it. And I would say this about the God that we serve, the, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He, he's a God of justice. Uh, the economy of his kingdom and the way that God sees justed meted out is a real common sense thing. Uh, and I would describe it this way. Rather than incarceration, the law of God taught restitution. See, in our country, we operate on laws that deal out in incarceration. Uh, the most recent statistic I could find was this, that as of 2010 in Canada, uh, adults incarcerated in prison, there was over 160,000 adults. 
In the U.S., the number was far more than 10 times that amount incarcerated and currently in prison, serving jail time uh, for crimes that they had uh, committed. As we're going to see, as we go through this section of, I don't know, law, God's judgments, his rulings for his people, God deals his justice by bringing about restitution. Now, if you came to this section, you're reading in your Bible and you're going through your daily quiet time and you came to Exodus chapter 21 to 23, there's kind of a common thing that starts to happen to most of us. Your eyes begin to glaze over. They get heavy. You start going, oh. Your head starts to nod and before you've read it, you've, before you realize that you've read chapters 21 to 23 and you didn't draw a lot out of it and your brain disengaged and you wondered what the Holy Spirit actually said to you and you closed your Bible and went, wow, I don't know if that did me any good today. <laughs> but it did. It did. Uh, and so this morning, what I want us to do is apply our brains and apply our hearts to what God says in this chapter and we trust that the Holy Spirit will communicate to us because I think there's some awesome stuff in this one chapter. You know, one of the things that I think the Holy Spirit has emphasized to us as a church as we've gone through this Exodus account and come to the, the account of what happened at Mount Sinai as God's people encountered God was this, is that heaven came down to earth. You've heard me say that lots during this series. As the Lord talked with his people and communicated to them, uh, the expectation of the Lord was never that somehow man should ascend up to him. Climb the steps, climb the ladder, make the way, living this way and that way and by these rules and by this and by that making his way to God. Rather the pattern that we see in scripture always is that heaven comes down to men. That God came down to Mount Sinai. That in the Garden of Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve. When, when Jesus came, the incarnation of God, God manifest in the flesh, he, he descended from the plane of God and he joined us in our humanity. See, God in his love always comes down from heaven to earth. And we've seen this on Mount Sinai, heaven came down. And in, in these chapters, uh, which recount these, these laws and the establishment and the order uh, of a nation that God was establishing, you know, I, I'm just reminded by the spirit that the great God of heaven always stoops. He lowers himself and he gets involved in the details of men and the relationships of, of people. And, and he... We're going to see he makes regulations even to the point of, you know, the loss of a tooth. Say, really? God cares about my teeth falling out? <laughs> yes, he does. You know, the word of God tells us that he knows the number of the hairs that are on our head, right? For some of us, I heard this loss from my family. Boy, those numbers are getting easier to count, you know. They're getting easier to count. So as we launch into this uh, section of Exodus, it's important to remember, I, I guess, uh, to keep this, this principle in mind for us that, that our attitude towards fellow human beings uh, will be based on our attitude that we have towards God's word and God's law. And so God says, as, as you apply yourself to my word, it will affect the way that you treat and act 
towards other people. Um, F.B. Meyer said this. I, I just love this. He said, the things enumerated in this passage might seem small to mention, but after all, nothing is small that touches character. Nothing is small that touches character. And so that's, that's a great way to describe this section that we're going to come through. You say, seriously, God, you're going to mention that? Nothing is small that touches our character. And like I said, it's, it's really good to be uh, home to worship with you guys this morning after two weeks away. Uh, Lisa and I have been married for over 16 years. We dated for a couple years before we got married. And in all that time, I have never been to her sister's house. Because her sister lived in Yellowknife and then they've been in Ottawa for years and her sister's 18 years older and so their family has always come our way and you know we've never had the chance to go their way. Lisa's gone on her own but I, I never got to go or take our kids or one kid's gone at a time. And so for all of us to go back east and then to drive up and visit them in Ottawa was really awesome and we arrived at their place on a Thursday night and they both work for the federal government and so Friday was a work day for them. And David, my brother-in-law, gave me the lowdown. We thought, we're, we're clear to ourselves. You know, the kids are out of school. It's time for a social studies lesson. We're going to go visit Parliament. And so David gave me the lowdown. He's like, today, that House of Commons is in session. And it's really worth going in to see. And he said, it's Friday. So they get out at, they get out at 12 noon. So you've got to get there and get in the list and go through security. There's extra security and all that stuff. And you can go and you can sit in the gallery and watch the debate and the discussion that happens in the House of Commons. And, and so on the Friday morning, uh, we got up. Uh, we did the tour of, a self-guided tour of Parliament. We got our name on a, uh, on a tour later in the afternoon. And, and we went up and went through security and got into the, the gallery. And it was uh, quite cool to sit in there while these parties debated. Now, if you haven't heard, we had something kind of interesting happen that afternoon. We were doing our tour. And the prime minister came walking down the hall. He greeted our group. He came over, stood in our midst, and, and they snapped a photo of us, and they sent us a hard copy of the photo, and Eli got to shake his hand. Eli said, high five! And Prime Minister Harper, as only Eli would do, right? Prime Minister Harper grabbed his hand, and he, and he shook it, and they did the photo. And the security said to it, he leaned over to me. I was standing on the edge of the group. The security parliamentary police said, he has never done that before. That is, that was like through all the security for a loop because you can see, you know, he's cruising around with it. And so I thought, yeah, if there's ever one person who would get to shake the prime minister's hand, it would be my son, Eli, because that's just his personality. And he didn't let anybody forget that he shook the prime minister's hand. He rubbed it in really good for his brother and sister. Anyways, we, we got to go into the House of Commons and sit in the gallery while the parties debated. And that was the day that Harper gave his speech that they were going to send the F-18s over to the Middle East to deal with, with ISIS. And so, as you can only imagine, although Harper wasn't yet in the House of Commons and he hadn't yet given the speech, everyone knew what was coming down the pipe. So it was an entertaining day to listen to the parties. Uh, go at it as they debated what they were going to do in the Middle East and how they were going to act and uh, all this stuff. And I found it super entertaining and really interesting as the opposition held the feet of the, the government to the fire on the decisions that they made. And um, I gained an, a new respect for government and for how it operates in Canada, actually. While we sat there, I thought, oh yeah, we're going for five minutes and then we'll leave. 
And like the kids were begging to go. And I'm like, no, just five more minutes. Just five more minutes. And we stand there for 45 minutes. Anyways, I say that to say this. The extent of my experience with the House of Commons prior to this trip was this. Sitting on the couch, flicking channels through the television set. And I come across this public channel where, where these people are arguing. There's French and there's English. And the carpet's green and it's really ugly. And the first thing I think to myself is, why don't they get an interior decorator and clean that place up? And then I flick the channel because I don't care what's being said. I, anybody relate with that? Yeah. <laughs> the reason why I mention that is because Exodus chapter 21 and 23 is kind of like the same experience, okay? You come to it and, and the first thing you, you, you go, this isn't interesting. Let's move on. Let's, I'm, not, I'm gleaning nothing from this experience. Okay? I want us to glean something from this experience this morning as we go through Exodus chapter, just chapter 21. But like I said, you know, uh, actually, by the way, on our tour, I said, I have a really pertinent question. Why is the carpet green? <laughs> and you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I got an answer. And I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so that for the rest of your life, when you surf by that channel, you'll think of this sermon. And you'll think, Matt never told us why that ugly carpet is green. <laughs> well, maybe I'll tell you next week if you come back to church. No. So, uh, the point I'm trying to make is this. Is that our experience in Ottawa at Parliament, um, when the gallery, when we were sitting in the gallery and they were debating, I, I would say I gained a new respect for democracy. We have a system of government in Canada where the people elect representatives and they, they go to Ottawa and ideally they represent uh, the local people from their area. They look out for the well-being of Canadians. They are the voice of, the Cana of Canadians to the crown. A democracy. Israel was different. What God was establishing was different. It was not a democracy. The government of the Israelites was to be a theocracy. You say, well, what's a, what's a theocracy? It is a system of government by which judges or priests rule in the name of God. In a theocracy, the public servants, the public authorities, I would say, are servants of the divine sovereign. They serve the king who who sits on a throne in heaven. And they represent him to the people. It's actually, they're, they're subject to his law, God's law, God's word. And it's a better form of government. It's the best form of government. It's theocracy. You say, really? Top down like that? Yes. When you have the perfect king, it's the best form of government. And most of these laws here that we're about to read as God establishes his rule over his, his people, they're primitive in a certain sense. You're going to see that. They're, they're primitive in a certain sense. But what we have to see is that God is founding principles that deal equity for his people. That establish a, an equity between men and women and slaves and non-slaves and, and this and that. And so, you know, as, as I think of this, I think, you know, in, in Canada, interpreting law, the application of law is big business, right? Lawyers. It's expensive. 
to interpret the law and to, to say, well, how do we interpret that law in this situation? How do we move it in this situation? And one of the things that I want you to notice and I hope will be clearly communicated as we go through this over the next two weeks uh, by the help of the Holy Spirit is the common sense nature of God's law. It's not rocket science. It's totally common sense. You know, the first person who messed with the interpretation of God's law, kind of played that role of a lawyer. Poor lawyers. I like to pick on lawyers. Who played that role of a lawyer was Satan. And in the garden to Eve, he said, did God really say? And he blurred the lines of God's word. He confused the, the actions so that the, 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 their understanding so that they acted in a way that dishonored God and God's instruction to Adam and Eve as we know in the word of God was really straightforward and easy to understand it went like this there's a tree don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the day you eat is the day you die that seems pretty straightforward but Satan blurred the lines and they went for it hook line and sinker and that is always the strategy of Satan to blur the lines in regards to God's in, blur the lines in regards to God's word and so as we go through this take note of of the common sense nature of God's theocracy let's check it out verse 2 he says this when you buy a Hebrew slave he shall serve 6 years and in the 7th year he shall go out free for nothing Okay, well, right away, I kind of think to myself, what's with God? Is God endorsing slavery? What's his whole stance on this thing? Is he into human slavery? Look, what we've seen in the story of Exodus is this. God started by leading his people out of what? Slavery. In Egypt, he heard their cries as they were oppressed. And he came down, because heaven always comes down when people cry out to God. He came down and he led them out of slavery to the place where they would worship him. See, God's people knew the harshest realities, realities of slavery. For them, you know, slavery was so bad under the oppression of the Egyptians that the Egyptians would seize their baby boys and they would throw them into the Nile River. That's genocide. Male genocide for the purpose of population control. And so with that in mind, we need to recognize that rather than endorsing slavery, the first person that God establishes rights for under his theocracy is the slave. You are not going to treat your slaves the way you were treated in Egypt. Not under my rule. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God awesome? To me, I just, it blows my mind as I think about that. He establishes rights for the slave. You know, the standard was that when you have a slave, you do what you want with the slave. You know, a few weeks back, we had Paul Willoughby here who works with the Dalit Freedom Network and he told us about the untouchable caste in India. Over 300 million people that are not considered human. In the culture of Hinduism, they are counted to be lower than the shoe, the dust on the bottom of you. They're considered animals. Like cattle to be herded, like people to be, to be used. As he told us, as he spoke about the Dalits, he said, the other cast, the, the Dalits say of themselves, we're untouchable until it comes to our women. They're, they're a people group that is used and abused and taken advantage of. And see, slaves don't have rights. 
Uh, slaves are nothing more than a possession to be used, but not with the Lord. Not under God's rule. He establishes equity for people. And the Lord begins his instruction for the judges by establishing rights for human slaves. For Hebrew slaves. Now there are four basic ways that a Hebrew could become a slave. To another Hebrew. In extreme poverty. Man, you are down and out. You could sell yourself to one of your Hebrew brothers. A father, a second way is this. A father, if he's in trouble, could sell financially or something like that. He could sell his children into servitude. Another case that the scripture talks about is in the case essentially of bankruptcy. Where a man is, uh, cannot pay his creditors. He is given over to a slavery. And the, third th- the fourth thing that we see in the scripture is this. Is that a thief steals and he has no way to restore that which he has stolen. He is forced into slavery. It's, it's his, the form of restitution that God has established for his thievery. And so in regards to servitude. The first thing that God establishes is a limit. He says there's a point here where there's enough. And it's going to be six years. The number of men, six years. I think of the six days of creation on the seventh day God rested, you know. Six days, uh, six years, work your fields and on the seventh year, let it rest. For six years, a man will serve and on the seventh year, he'll go free and he'll go out for nothing. He gets to go. And so slavery under God's theocracy was not to be a lifelong obligation. God was going to establish limits. Now verse 3 says, If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If a master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. Very simple, right? He comes in single, he goes out single. Okay? He comes in with the wife, he gets to take his wife with him. A little bit of a different rule though. If he comes in and the master gives him a wife, the wife and the children still belong to the master. He doesn't get to take them when the six Years is up. The completion of the six years. Verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Wow, this is kind of an interesting thing. So based on... The establishments of rights and equity uh, for slaves. It actually wasn't all bad being a slave. Under the Hebrew system. We're going to see this. They were guaranteed food. They were guaranteed clothing. They were guaranteed marital, marital rights. It wasn't the worst situation to be a slave. It was better than going hungry. It was better than not having an income. It was better than not having a roof over your head. It was better than not having the money to get a dowry. To, to get a wife. It, it was a much better life than some people had. And so the option was this. After six years of servitude, because life wasn't so bad being a servant, if the man should say, I love my master. He's good to me. The servant could make a lifelong commitment to that master. And it involved a ceremony Where the master would take the servant to the door. The entrance of the home. He'd lean him up against that. They'd take the lobe of his ear. And they'd drive the all through the ear. Pierce his ear. Into the doorpost. Essentially saying. This man. He's nailed to this house. He's he's part of this 
home uh, forever. He's making a lifelong uh, commitment and the ear was pierced. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I got my ear pierced. I don't wear that anymore. You know, that's, that's old hat for me. But uh, it create, created a stir, not within my immediate family, but within our family. Because the older generations of our family, we grew up in the Pentecostal holiness tradition on both sides, both my dad and my mom's side of the family. And so when I got my ear pierced, it was offensive to people in our family. You know, uh, because for them in their tradition, it was like, that is a symbol of slavery. It's kind of, things have kind of changed, haven't they? <laughs> Pearson's all the rage. You know, it's not limited to the ear either. Now, I imagine it was a powerful thing when this ceremony happened. When the master took the servant and the servant willingly leaned against the doorpost and wham, whammo, poke it through, man. He surrendered himself to a lifelong commitment uh, to the master. I, I, I really, you know, as I was thinking about it, I thought, I don't imagine that event would go unnoticed in a community or in a household. You know, the servant was doing something willingly because he said, I love my master. And I actually think, I bet that was a time of celebration in their culture. You know, I bet at that point in time when the servant made a lifelong commitment to the master, the master said, man, we're going to have a feast today. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate our friendship. Let's celebrate our relationship. Let's invite the community. This is a joyous thing. It was not a bad thing. You understand that? It's a good thing. It was a beautiful thing. The servant was motivated by his love for his master. He said, my master loves me. My master cares for me. And I love him back and I'm going to surrender my life to him. Does that sound like a familiar relationship to you? Do you have a master that you love? He said, I'm going to surrender my life to you, Jesus. You know, as we consider this, it's important that we make the Jesus application. Psalm 40, up on the screen here, says this. In sacrifice and offering... You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. That means this. Other translations say, but my ears you have pierced. Okay? In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. Psalm 40 verse 6 and the, the, the rest of those verses speak of the Messiah. It's messianic psalm. It, it speaks of a ceremony that took place between the father and the son. The, the psalmist actually spoke prophetically about Jesus before he ever came. You know Jesus, the Bible tells you he's the perfect servant. The perfect servant. Mark talks all about it. The gospel of Mark is all about defining Jesus as the servant of God. The prophet Isaiah spoke much of Jesus as the servant. He said in Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. See, that's a master who loves his servant. The father loves My soul delights in this servant. 
I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah said in verse, uh, chapter 52 verse 13, Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. See that's how the father treats his servant Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is the perfect servant. This relationship of master and servant exists between the father and the son. Uh, Paul even mentioned it in, in Philippians chapter 2. We've gone to Philippians chapter 2 much through Exodus. It says this in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 7. Paul speaking to Christians. Listen to this instruction on the screen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Very important. Have this Mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. See Jesus by his very nature is God. The eternal son of God. And, and he stooped. From the place of highest authority to the place of complete and total dependence upon the Father. From honor and glory to suffering and shame, Isaiah said. The maker of heaven and earth willingly entered into a relationship of subjection with his Father. You're the master, I'm the servant. I will serve your will. Why? Well, John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us very clearly. Because God loved the world. Because God loved the world. And the son so loved his father. That he said, I, I will love what you love. I will serve the desire of your heart. I, I have come, it is written in the scroll about me. I've come to do your will. And so the son subjected himself to the father because he loved the father. He subjected himself to the will of the father. Because the father loved us. You know Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 says. Uh, Behold I have come to do thy will. But see the servanthood of Jesus. Completely voluntary. Jesus said things. In the gospels like. I, I must be about my father's business. He said, I, I came down from heaven and earth not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And Jesus did not come to please himself. He even told his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. And in his life of service, Jesus perfectly fulfilled every righteous claim that God had on man. He obeyed the word of God. He, he fulfilled the law of God as we saw in Exodus chapter 20. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. If he came in by himself, remember this, this instruction here, 
From Exodus chapter 20. If the servant came in by himself, then he was to leave by himself. You know, Jesus came in with no, no bride. He, he said, drive thee all through my ear and I'll enter into the life of service with no bride. He came into the service of the Father. And for his love for the Father, he he died. He gave his life on the cross for the will of the Father. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And he was raised from the dead. And we have been brought into relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection of him through the dead, from the dead. And we are the bride of Christ. In, in his service, he was given a bride. He was given a bride and all of Jesus' actions were rooted in his love for his father. Hmm. You know, many of us came to Jesus Christ in poverty. Spiritually, we recognize I'm bankrupt. Jesus promised us that if we would surrender to him as Lord and Master, he would do the things that masters were supposed to do for slaves. For those that were bankrupt and had no way out. He'd clothe them. He'd feed them. He'd employ us in his service, the service of his kingdom. See, we came to Jesus in poverty, didn't we? There was really no op- no alternative. And, and we came to G- serve Jesus and it was, it was out of this compulsion. What choice do I have? I'm bankrupt spiritually. Uh, my life is void of peace. I don't know how to purchase that. I have no hope. How do I, I can't escape that. I, I need that from you, Jesus. I surrender my life to your rule and he clothed us and he fed us and he put us in his employment employment but as we get to know the master as we serve the master our our, our motivation should change from one of compulsion because we had no other choice to one of love shouldn't it to the place where we serve Jesus as Lord because we love him constrained by the love of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the door. And you know, we should say, then if you're the door, take me and drive my ear through. Take me to the cross and pin me there. Take me, Jesus, and and I'll serve you for the rest of my life because you love me, I love you back. Drive the all through my ear. I love you because you first loved me. Bore my ear to thy cross, dear Lord. And tie my wayward nature so closely to thyself that I may never be able to untie the knots. So shall I be for thee as thou for the Father. We have a master in heaven. And as you get to know him, you'll want to serve him because you love him, not because you have no choice. Verse 7 Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. 
When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So the Lord says, okay, we're going to establish my theocracy. Different rule for girls, man. Different rules for female slaves. Verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food. Here's her guarantee of her rights. He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So we see here that a maidservant was actually uh, not bought so much for slavery rather as to be a wife for a master or a wife for the son of a master. And so the male servant, of course, was, as we read here, is to be freed after six years. This was not the case with the female servant. And really, when you think about it, this is actually a blessing for the female servant. This was a means by which the Lord would ensure that she was not, you know, traded in for a new model after six years. I got to rent a car last week, you know, when we were on holidays. And I came home, we flew home, and I grabbed the car. And my massive five is six years old. And uh, after driving that rental car, I, I thought I was driving a tin can when I got back into my car. I, I, I thought, man. But you know, thankfully it's a car, not a wife. I can trade this one up. No, I'm not going to do that yet, though, because it's paid for. I'm going to hang on. But you, you imagine... That if a family was in extreme financial pressure, they could sell one of their children into slavery. If it was a son, the rule was this. He's free after six years. Wow, I should keep that in mind. If I got to sell my daughter or my son, my son will be free in six years. My daughter, I am entering her into a lifelong commitment to someone. It's for life. And it forced parents to be very cautious regarding the decisions that they made for their daughter. She will become someone's wife. I I better not handle that lightly. She's not a commodity that I can trade so that she can be used and abused. God has given her equity and if I sell her, it's for life. I'll get a dowry payment. But I I better be careful about the home that I send her into or the son that she might marry. I think I'd rather sell my son first. How about you? And if the master or the the son did not want to marry her, the law required that they look after her needs and they look after her well-being. She was taken care of. In the home of her parents, if they were broke, food, clothing, roof over her head, these things were not guaranteed, but they were in the life of slavery. And so we need to recognize that this was, you know, giving rights to the lower class giving rights to women that protected them from being abused by either their parents or their masters. Parents and masters came under the obligations of God's laws, his theocracy, his kingdom, and it created a secure future for children where they would be provided for. And verse 12, we'll move through some of these other ones quicker. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Whoa, that's harsh. 
Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So an individual who committed second degree murder would not be held to the same standard to one who committed first degree murder. With intent, with premeditation, okay? It's a different deal. He was to be killed. Verse 14. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take you shall take him from my altar that he may die. You know, there's actually times when you're reading the Old Testament when you're reading stories and different things happen and there's restitution. Someone has committed a crime. They've murdered someone. And the ruling authority says he needs to be dealt with. Often in the Bible, you read about this. What would the man do? He'd run to where? The temple, the altar. There will be cities of refuge. We're going to get to that part later. He'd cling to the horns of the altar. And the Lord said, hey man, you're not going to use service to me or religion to cover up your crime. It's not a place for your protection. I'm a God of restitution. There is to be restitution when there is crime. You intentionally killed someone, another, another person, it's, it's going to cost you your life. You cannot hide behind the cloak of religion. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. <laughs> That's harsh, eh? Uh, you know, but I'll, I'll bet it wasn't very often that a parent raised his, uh, a child raised his hand against a parent. And, and we need to interpret this in light of the previous verses. This, the context is murder here. You know, often in these events with families and what was happening in their culture, you know, the person who would avenge a murder victim was often a family member, right? I mean, if you, let's say, for instance, someone killed your brother, then you're going to go and you're going to avenge that murder. Now, with God's command and his system of justice, the purpose, this is important, was always for avenging wrongdoing, not revenge. Those are Avenge and revenge are two different things. You can look them up in the dictionary. They're two different things. There's a difference between avenging murder and having revenge for murder. See, by definition, avenging is doing something on behalf of someone else. Revenge, it, it, by its nature, always ups the game. You hit me once, I hit you twice. <laughs> you cut off one of my fingers, I cut off your hand, right? That's revenge. That's how, revenge ups the game and it's an endless cycle of retribution and getting back. God said, we're not acting in revenge here. We, we create restitution for the crime that's committed. If it's murder, you lose your life. Simple, straightforward, it's over, it's done. And so God's laws were given so that human desire for justice was not turned into a revenge. Rather, a victim was avenged. Verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Kidnapping. In our culture, we call it human trafficking. It's epidemic in our world. It's a problem in Canada. It's hard to believe. But, you know, I suspect the Hebrews didn't have problems with human trafficking like we have all over the world. Why? Because they understood, if I get involved with this, it will cost me my life. It's not a game. People are not toys that you trade like hockey cards. 
They're people and they have value before their maker in heaven. You treat people like that, God will deal with you. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Wow, again, it seems harsh, right? But we know this. There, there are ways of hurting people besides using your fists. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. That is not true, right? James said this, the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. See, words, they could be like a spear. <laughs> they could, words could be like an arrow. The tongue can be sharp as a sword. You know, you can... You know, I would say, if you, if you can't speak kind to someone, then it's best, right, not to speak at all. Learn to bite your tongue. And it's interesting that with this command, it kind of makes clear this point that when you point your finger at someone else, there's three, three fingers pointing back at you. God says, when you, when you curse your mother and father, the result will be death in your own life. In condemning others, you betray yourself. You expose your own heart. And so the application is guard the door of your lips. Learn to speak positively in regards to people. Be an encourager. Build people up, not tear down. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other one, with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if a man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. That's kind of like dudes. They go at it. If you get to walk away after a couple days and you're healed up and your knuckles are sore, it's all clear. Okay, guys? You can have a hockey fight. Oh. <laughs> Verse 19. Uh, oh, sorry. Verse 19 says, Then if a man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and he shall have him thoroughly healed. But the deal is this. You owe that man compensation for his personal injury. If, if because of a conflict, a man is injured, and he's unable to work, the one who injured him must pay compensation to him and his family and make sure his wages are paid, make sure his doctor bills are paid, and make sure that he can get back to life as normal. However, if he recovers from, uh, and, and, and if, uh, yeah, if he recovers from the injury, that's all you're responsible for. Now verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So under the theocracy of God, servants um, could be murdered, but masters would be punished for murder. That's what you need to see, right? These aren't free game with these people. They have rights before me. They're made in my image. If you hurt your slave, if you murder your slave, you uh, will die. In other cultures, you know, as I mentioned, slaves are nothing. You know, they could be murdered and replaced and they have no value because, you know, maybe they weren't a person in the first place as far as the master was concerned. They were nothing more than a slave. And the Lord says, no. If you murder your slave, you die. Verse 22. Or he, you, it shall be avenged, which means you die. Verse 22. 
When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge judges determine. But if there is no harm, then you shall pay it life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. But here's a spot in the Bible where we hear that rule in the Gospels where it says, hand for hand, foot for foot, eye for eye. Jesus said, no. Uh, he, he took this to a new level. He said, no, if someone strikes you in the cheek, turn your other one and they could strike you again. You know, you, you act with compassion and, and forgiveness towards uh, people. And, but again, we, we see here that crime should be avenged, but that's different from revenge. It's not you cut off my one hand, I get both yours. It's one for one, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You break it, you buy it. Got it? As an example of that, he gives this case of a pregnant woman who is in the wrong place at a wrong time. There's two men fighting and she's injured in the conflict. She gives birth prematurely and there was a penalty for, of, of retribution was determined by whether there was lasting damage or not. No lasting damage then nothing happens. It's just you square up the deal. Something bad happens, um, then you deal with it. But you know, I, f I find this kind of interesting because it's like, you know, sometimes in life, bad stuff just happens. I mean, you've had bad, I've had bad stuff. Stuff just happens. And there's certain things where it's like, man, get over it. Move on. You know that happened? Move on. Get on with life and serve God. It happened, but, and it was awful at the time, but there was nothing lasting except your emotions. So deal with them and bring them to God. Find healing in the Lord for that stuff. Move on. If there's lasting damage, then retribution will be limited by the Lord. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's that principle. It says in verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and if he destroys it, he shall let the slave go free. Different rule now when we're dealing with slaves. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, shouldn't it be eye for eye? Look at what happens. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and he destroys it, he shall let the slave go for free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go for free because of his tooth. So different application for servants, you know. If there was eye, you know, if their eye was injured, they got something better than just getting back at their master and getting his eye. They got their freedom. They were freed from the life of slavery. Verse 28, wrap it up pretty quick here. I hope you don't feel like you're watching the House of Commons. Verse 28, when an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So, uh, you know, accidents happen. This is an agricultural society. You know, losing a work animal like an ox would be like a serious blow uh, to the economy of your household, to your financial well-being, uh, to your earning potential. 
And so the Lord says, man, if you, if you let that happen with your ox and he gores a man and someone dies, the animals, the animals put to death and you don't get to sell the meat. You don't get any financial benefit from that animal. You lost, man, because you did not control that beast. It was lost all the way around for everyone. Verse 29, but if an ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give, I'm, I'm laughing because of these. This is, it's interesting that this is in, Bible, in the Bible, right? Verse 30, if a, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. So in other words, it's, it's a different rule if you're the owner of an ox and you know that your animal has a history of aggression towards people. You know it. And you should know better than that. You should know how to handle your pit bull. You should know how to handle your ox. If it's aggressive towards people and you fail to control that animal and you know it's aggression and, and someone dies, you are guilty of murder. And it will cost, cost you your life and the animal will die too. Verse 32, if the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. Does that number sound interesting to you? Wasn't someone else in the Bible sold for 30 shekels of silver? If an ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. It's what Judas was paid for betraying Jesus. And the religious leaders, when they gave 30 pieces of silver to Judas, they knew exactly what they were communicating. Don't think that they were playing around. They knew the law. That man is nothing more than a slave. Here's 30 pieces of silver. Really, is that all a man is worth that's turning your world upside down? That's got a whole nation turning after him? He's worth 30. It was a derogatory action towards the Lord Jesus Christ. They set the price on his head at 30 pieces of silver. Verse 33. Wrap it up quick here. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. You know, often in those days, water cisterns were covered with a stone or you'd lay lumber over them, you know, planks of wood or something to cover a cistern, a hole, so that no one fell into it. And so if you needed to go get a drink of water and you need water for this or that, whatever, you go and you uncover the cistern, you take the, the water out, but if you were a careless, neglectful person who was not considerate of other people and you just left the cover off and some animal or person came along and fell into that hole in the dark, or stumbled in because it was steep or whatever it was, you were liable for that action of neglect. If you're going to be careless and inconsiderate of others, then you will be held liable. That's what the Lord's saying. And you know, I, I, I would say to us, you know, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
we should be careful to live by this same principle. Don't you think? That, that we're not people who cause us, others harm because we're neglectful, because we're careless people, because we're inconsiderate. As followers of Jesus in whatever we do, we should be, we should be considerate and careful and we should think on behalf of others. You know, whether that means, uh, you know, tidying up the dishes, you know, wiping off the toilet seat after you pee on it. Hey man, everything's worship, my friends. Everything is worship. Everything is worship. You know, maybe it's like leaving a hotel room in decent condition after you pull out of there. Whatever it is. As followers of Jesus Christ, every area of our life should be treated with consideration and thoughts of Jesus should be courteous and careful. Wrap it up here. When one man's ox butts another, so that he die, so that it dies, then they shall sell the ox and share its price. And the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. That seems pretty fair and logical to me, doesn't it to you? Simple, common sense stuff. I'm sure if we hired a lawyer, he could find ways to make money and blur the interpretation of all of this. It's common sense stuff as the Lord established his government and his rule. See, God in his nature is just. God in his nature is fair. God, by his nature, desires restitution. He wants broken things fixed. He wants order brought. And, and he cares about every aspect of our life. That's, that's what strikes me about this. I think, wow, God cares. He's not blind to the, my experience of injustice. He's not blind to my actions of injustice towards others. It, it, common sense should rule. But again, we're dealing with people, right? Human beings, we're sinful by our name. We, 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 we scratch and we claw to get ahead and we step on who we need to step on. And the Lord is just. And I'll tell you something, the Lord wants restitution with you. In your relationship with him. His word says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just and I will forgive you your sins. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just and I will forgive you your sins. I'll make restitution for you and all you got to do is confess. I, I, I sent my, my son because he loved me, got on mission with me and he, he left uh, his throne in eternity and in heaven and he clothed himself in humanity. He stooped down and he served my purposes. And you know, I don't, I don't know uh, wh where you're at with the Lord. If you love the Lord, then I think after a text like this, our prayer should be, Jesus, drive the all through my ear. I love you.
I want to serve you. Take me to the cross and pin me there. <laughs> but if, we don't know Je- if you don't know Jesus and you're in that place where you sense your poverty, you, you sense your inability to find peace, to find hope, to find life, I'm telling you, you will find it in coming to Jesus Christ. He will clothe you, he will feed you, and he will put you to work on his behalf. You can trust him. If there's one thing we should see from this text, it's this, that God is a good master. He's a master you never have to fear. He's a master who will always look out for your well-being and, and, and it'll be good to serve him. When you surrender your life to him and say, man, I don't have another choice. I'm going to follow you. I'll tell you what will happen for you. You will fall in love with him. You will fall in love with him. Lord Jesus, drive the all through my ear. Drive the all through each of our ears, Lord, that we would serve you from that place of love for you. I'm going to invite the worship team. As they're coming, I'm going to invite you just to stand with me. And let's pray again as we get ready to worship our Lord. Hey, I want to tell you this. Um, this morning we're going to have uh, two prayer teams available. I'm going to ask Trevor and Jana if they'd be up on that end. And Darson Tam, and they'll be at the back on that side. And you say, man, maybe I just need someone to pray with me today. While we're worshiping, we'd like to just take 10 minutes here at the end to respond to the Lord and what he's done in our hearts. If you'd like prayer this morning, there's two teams, two couples available at the back, all right? And if you'd like prayer, you can go see them and pray. Let let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to worship Jesus. I thank you that you are an awesome master. Lord, this morning we respond to you. We, We declare our love for you because you first loved us. Jesus, this morning I thank you for the cross in which you shed your blood and you purchased men. You you poured out your life for our sin and for our redemption. You died, you were buried, and you were raised from the dead, and you have ascended into heaven where you continue to serve your Father on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that one day we will be reunited with you, that you will come again. Heaven will come down, and you will take us to be with you. Jesus, upon that, we set our hope this morning. We thank you for your great love for us. Lord, I pray that if there are those here this morning who do not know you, that that in their heart, today as we sing, that, that they would just say, Jesus, I'm bankrupt. I have no hope. I have no peace. I need you. Come and be the Lord of my life and feed me, clothe me, care for me. And I thank you, Jesus, that you will do that that when we turn from our self-centered life and we surrender to your rule, you bring those things. And so, Lord, may that happen even now as we worship. Thank you, Jesus.